Happy Monday, friends. Welcome back to the Mark Claire Show, where I do my darndest, do my best to be your host, your guide, your shining beacon of light as we navigate this crazy reality of ours. I'm going to attempt to do that today with my guest, Dexter De La Paz of the Scarlet Thread Society. But before we jump into that, I got to tell you again about our amazing first sponsors of the show. It's Fox and Sons Coffee. Head over to their website, foxandsons.com. That's F-O-X, the letter N, S-O-N-S, foxandsons.com. And Stephen Fox started this company, not just to support the Mark Lair Show, but actually to teach his sons a little bit about entrepreneurship and sort of, you know, bring back some of those memories he had of sharing great coffee with his father growing up and kind of merge that all into the great, great company known as Fox and Sons. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. I've got these two pound Fox and Sons bags and you too can have them as well. Just head over to foxandsons.com and use discount code MCS. Look, there's more evidence right here. I'm literally drinking this coffee here as I record this intro on Sunday morning. Um, But you want to head over to foxandsons.com, use discount code MCS. Now what you're going to get with that is either your third bag free if you're buying like the regular size bags or you're going to get $12.99 off, a $12.99 discount if you're buying these two pounders like I need to do because I am running through this stuff. Steven produces amazing coffee. I prefer the dark roast. I I am a dark roast man myself, Um, but check out all the products at foxandsons.com. And if that wasn't enough, I have a special deal going now through the end of the year. I'm going to be doing a raffle where we're actually going to give away one of these two pound bags of coffee. And uh, the way you get into that raffle, your ticket is a review, an Apple podcast review specifically of the Mark Claire show. So I want you to head over to Apple Podcasts. I don't care how you listen to this show. If you watch the video version, head over to Apple Podcasts, write a little review, give me five stars. That's what I deserve. That's what I know you want to give me. And screenshot that thing. Send it to Show at gmail.com. I will enter you into that raffle, and the winner will get a free bag of Fox & Sons coffee. You really can't go wrong with this. Everybody wins. Speaking of winning, here's a real winner. Today's guest, Dexter De La Paz. My guest today is a co-host over at the Gaslight Hour, as well as one of the hosts on Timeline Earth, where he hosts the monthly Scarlet Thread Society. He goes by many names, the dog man respecter, Dexter De La Paz. I'm just going to call him Paz. Paz, what's up? Thank you so much for having me. If I can just say up front, I love that little video intro you've got. It's fantastic. Thank you. You're not the first person to com- to uh, comment on that, and uh, I hope it sort of sets the tone for, for where things are going to go. And uh, I, I think with you, it's it's pretty safe. I think it will. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think with you, it's pretty safe to say between the Gaslight Hour, the work you do on the Scarlet Thread Society, I'll let you kind of break down what you're doing there. But you have definitely an, 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 a strong interest in the mysterious, the supernatural, uh, that sort of thing. Same kind of stuff I grew up really being interested in, catching Art mm-hmm. Bell on the radio, uh, watching Unsolved Mysteries. That's that's kind of my my early growth. But I want to find out where, where this sort of started for you. Where did you first take interest? in the supernatural, the unknown, and that sort of thing? Right answer is it started at my local library, right? I've always been a voracious reader of whatever I could get my hands on. And even from a very, very young age, I found myself entranced in the books about Bigfoot or about UFO encounters or real ghost stories, you know, quote unquote, real ghost stories. And that's kind of where it started. It laid off for a little bit in my middle school years. I started attending a Christian, and then in high school, as I found a way to synthesize or understand how the two interplayed with each other, picked back up. And it was there in high school that I started to get really deeply and seriously into this stuff. What was it? I mean, it's interesting because Bigfoot, Bigfoot comes up a lot in, in these kind of conversations, and that was definitely an interest of mine. Was there something specific like that you can recall, like a specific... Whether it was an article, probably not a video. I'm saying YouTube video, like it's like it was, uh, you know, not the '80s or whatever. But was there a specific article or a specific um, something that you saw that made you not just like take interest in it, but maybe go to this higher level of like, oh wait, there we live in a sort of mysterious world, and this is something I have to explore further. So for me in particular, I don't think it was anything about think what really led it to being Bigfoot as the entry point, the reference point there, is how culturally safe Bigfoot is treated. Mm. You know, it's okay yeah. for normies and absolute skeptics to talk Got about Harry and the Henderson anyways. Exactly. There's a proliferation of Bigfoot in the media. You know, they have to be very careful to poo-poo Bigfoot, 
whenever it starts to get a little too serious or they think they found tracks or think they found a body. But other than that, it's very, very safe to discuss point for a lot of people into this sort of alternative information counterculture. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you the think shadow world? Yeah. Why, why do you think Bigfoot is seen as, as the sort of like safe topic? I, I would say like for a long time, I guess I, I thought I was like some kind of rebel for being interested in UFOs, but like only later I'm like, well, I was interested in UFOs because they were on TV. They were in this Time magazine. But like, you know, so there's there's definitely certain things in the realm of the mysterious that are acceptable to sort of talk about and have conversations about. And then there's other stuff where it's like, no, you're crazy if you talk about that thing. But we can we can humor. We can make movies about UFOs. We can make movies about Bigfoot. Um, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Why there are certain elements of the mysterious that are perfectly fine to be, you know, a part of our pop culture? I think it's probably got a lot to do with either what people who are actually in the know, what the level lever pullers know themselves or what they suspect. I don't think Bigfoot would be such an acceptable topic unless the people in control of the system thought that it just wasn't an actual thing Mm. or they had a reason not to be concerned about it. You know, in just the past decade or so, there's been sort of a message board story that's gone around or a theory that's circulated a few different times that the national park system was set up as a result of Teddy Roosevelt having his own Bigfoot encounter. Plausible, it's not a super well-supported theory, but it's that sort of thing. You know, either there's already a plan in place to deal with Bigfoot or they're reasonably certain Bigfoot's not real. And that's why we're allowed to have the media exposure to it. That's why we're allowed to feel like we're in the know about something that they don't want us to know about. And I think that that's the exact same thing with, for instance, UFOs. You know, we're allowed to speculate about this and pretend that we're on something because they either already know what's up or they've already discarded it. Yeah, the UFOs are an interesting one because while Bigfoot is always put out there somewhat comically, um, what we're seeing now with UFOs is definitely another level of, okay, It's you're allowed to make movies about this stuff. You're allowed to have E.T. or whatever. Now you actually have government officials or people related to the government coming out, showing us videos, saying we don't know what these things are. Um, really, it's gone from accepting that you can talk about this to actually pushing the narrative, which is something that we've never seen with Bigfoot. So you can take that in either direction you want, but I'm just kind of curious what where your mindset is seeing all this stuff unfold. When I suppose, I suppose when I really, really first got seriously into UFOs, I was super excited about this. But nice. as the years have gone on, as I've studied more myself, as I've read and seen more of the documentation about the subject, I've realized that it's really the thing about this is faucet releases of UFO information pretty reliably every two or three decades. Hmm. You know, right away when the UFO phenomenon began, There were the Blue Book press conferences 10 years later. And then in the 80s, there was another big wave of UFO releases. And all the New Age movement people that was just finally coalescing thought disclosure is right around the corner. Hmm. And then in 2010, people kind of started thinking that, again, it's fine info. We're about to figure out what's actually been going on at Wright-Patterson this entire time. And then it didn't happen. And then there was, what's that gentleman's name, Elizondo, again, just a few years ago. And I think this is just the latest part of that cycle playing out again. Interesting. So, so I this- know that's a little bit of a party pooper take. But. <laughs> no, I, I want, I want the, I want the hot, the real hot takes here, the Dexter takes. Um, so that that's interesting because, I, yeah, I, I haven't really looked at it that way, but. I probably, when I first got into UFOs, wasn't really on things enough to really think about things in the terms of, you know, disclosures and, and what they might want people to see. So what what is your personal thought on, on the whole UFO thing? Do you think, why do you think we see these cycles of sort of disclosures, of teases of disclosures that don't actually end up going to where where we might actually see like, hey, here's the alien, you know, here he is. He, we bring him out in the press conference. Right. Do you think we're ever going to get to something like that or to something more extreme where we see a quote unquote UFO invasion or something that's supposed to be like that? Or do you think this is just part of some other sort of psychological operation? I think that this is the sort of thing where there can be a future, a theory of power, you know, in terms of politics and how government functions that says it's more about individual actors or groups 
pushing the levers of the state to their own ends than it does the state itself having any sort of goal itself. So I think it kind of depends on who's in power behind the scenes at any given time, what their objectives are, what their own thoughts are. You know, we make a lot of these people out to be boogeymen, but at the end of the day, some of them are just as weird as, you know, I am and have their own extremely strange theories. So I think part of these waves are dictated by who can touch the levers of power at any given time. And I think another big part of it is whether or not any given person with access to those levers actually believe those themselves. Now, as for me, I subscribe to the theories of John Keel more than anything. He's been a huge influence on me. He's a huge influence on the Gaslight Hour. For those of you who aren't familiar with that name, that's the gentleman behind the Mothman prophecies. He was a prolific travel journalist for a long time, and he did tremendous amounts of work on UFOs and other explained, unexplained phenomenon, uh, including Black Magic, one of his absolute best works, a little bit lesser known, Jadu. It's the story of him backpacking basically across into India, and it ends with him purportedly having his own sighting of the abominable snowman. So this guy just led a really interesting life, and his theory of UFOs boils down to it is some power or entity that's outside the traditionally perceivable human spectrum that under the right conditions can manifest within you know our visible portion of the light spectrum or make itself aware to our limited senses when the conditions are right. It's the super spectrum theory, boiling down theory of UFOs. Yeah, and, and John Keel, like you I hope that answered the question. Well, yeah, close it. We'll, we'll, we'll dig a little deeper. That's what we do here. But I, just to give a little background for people that, well, if people have seen the movie, The Mothman Prophecies, it's actually a decent movie, but it, it doesn't really necessarily give the, you know, the, the full spectrum. The book, the, the Mothman Prophecies, he does get into like some of this stuff. Um, I think he was probably still forming some of his theories at that time, but can you yes, maybe just absolutely. get into, uh, for people that aren't familiar with the story of The Mothman and where that comes from, can you maybe, you know, give a little bit of your version of that? Yeah, so the story of the Mothman, uh, there is this town in, it's West Virginia, or perhaps it's just across the Kentucky straight line from there. Anyways, the Appalachians is where this is set, right? And this area is, of course, riddled with small towns, boom towns, bus towns, and locals in one of these towns, Point Pleasant, started seeing this entity, right? This winged entity that looked like an upright moth man. You know, it's literally how it got its name. And it started appearing at this abandoned TNT plant. It started appearing to local luminaries like the police force. And eventually there was a bridge collapse in this town. And it appeared there at the bridge. I believe the name was the Silver Bridge. Yeah, I believe so. And so, is being a harbinger of impending doom. And some of these people took it upon themselves to send letters to John Keel. And he made a name for himself yet again, as he was already pretty well known as a UFO researcher. That's how these people were aware of him. By coming down to this town and talking to people and trying to figure out what they were seeing. And now this thing has appeared sporadically since then, but it's never, you know, it left that festival about the Mothman every year, but it's never come back to there, but has been seen periodically in places where there's some sort of psychic trauma or some sort of terrible events about to take place. Several years ago now, it would have been 2017, 2018, it was appearing very regularly in Chicago. Once again, to police officers, to first responders, to people who are out walking around. So it's, there's not actually a lot of facts about this. There's, but people don't actually know what it is, how it appears, why it appears, what the pattern is. You know, that's why people call these things cryptids. That's why it's cryptozoology, right? It should be an animal. It looks vaguely humanoid. But we don't know what it is. We don't have any reason to believe we could know what it is. Well, yeah, I, I think that's the part where a lot of us 
or a lot of people like me anyway, that we always kind of want to get to the bottom of something, get to the truth about a thing, whatever that thing may be. And at some point, I think when you get deep enough into the sort of the realm of the supernatural, the mystical, um, you kind of have to like, there's, there's two paths you can go down. You can become obsessed with knowing the truth about everything. And you're just going to be in a cycle then because you're, you're just going to run into different things that you can't put together. Or you take the other path and sort of at some point just embrace that there's a lot of weird shit going on in this world and I'm not going to be able to figure it all out. All I can do is sort of look for interesting patterns, look for things we can point at and sort of, you know, theorize from there. Absolutely. And for me, at least, I can't speak for anyone else. I actually tend to oscillate depending on just what the actual subject matter is. For a lot of this extremely strange stuff, I don't think that there is an ultimate answer and that observing the pattern is more important. But for other things where it's actual conspiracy, things like people's malfeasance, government bad actors, you know, there are names, there are stories to tell, and there are actual facts, no matter how buried they may be. So in instances like that, I think we do need to be a little bit more obsessive about what removed we are from it. So part of it, too, probably changes topic to topic. And the thing about conspiracy theory is many people pick just one topic and it becomes their overwhelming passion, becomes their bugaboo, it becomes their white whale. And I think that's a person needs to be careful with that. There's a place for that. But it's far too easy for it to overwhelm you. You disappear up your own you-know-what, and then all of a sudden you're not making sense to yourself or anyone else. You know, you need physical and spiritual barriers in place to approach and handle this stuff. Well, that, that's something that I, I do want to really dig into you into with you is the, the what you just mentioned there, the, the, the barriers, so to speak, getting into any one certain subject. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, because like you said, with any subject, it doesn't matter if it's politics or Bigfoot or Mothman or whatever it may be, 9-11 truth. It's, it's so easy to get so focused on the truth of any one thing that it's, it becomes your sole focus and sole mission. And I think when you get that deep on something, as you were kind of pointing out, at some point you're not even... You're not even trying to get to the truth necessarily. You're you're in your own thing. You know, you you've, you've gone to a whole different place, and it's and it's not in the end of the day going to be a healthy place. So, as someone who has been in this realm for for quite some time now, maybe you can shed a little more light on on how you see sort of setting up those barriers for yourself, or kind of dig into a little more what you mean when you say spiritual barriers. I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, to make it more palatable to people who may be having their first experience with this sort of content themselves. The idea is to just look out for you know, when to close the laptop, when to sign out of YouTube, when to put the book down. And sometimes it's okay to just go for a run while you chew on a topic in your own head. You know, you don't need to devote every single second of free time to this. It's good to give yourself time to process, to analyze, to consider these things without trying to take everything in all at once. And that's really more about the mental discipline. Uh, the physical discipline is don't skip a murder the next document you open. You know, the spiritual barriers are just that don't think you've discovered some ancient truth. If you think about the mystery school traditions in Western esoterica, they're not real. I mean, maybe they are, maybe components of them are. But you're not going to reinvent and rediscover their ancient truths by yourself sitting alone in front of your laptop. So calm down, right? <laughs> Just take care of yourself, understand what you're reading, take the time working with, and very importantly, don't get in over your own head. It's important to approach any subject, any body of knowledge with a sense of humility, but especially this stuff, because it will take you over if you let it. Are you speaking from experience? How, how Have you ever found yourself too deep on a particular subject or a particular topic where you kind of had to like grab yourself by the shirt and just sort of pull yourself, pull yourself out? That's a very good question. And I would say of 96,000 pages of documentation on the CIA's work with astral projection, mind reading, and other uh, ESP programs. 
these are all available online, but I've got them saved on my hard drive. And there were a lot of times I told myself, well, just 10 more pages. They're finally getting <laughs> into the diagnosis of the controls they used for this other experiment three chapters ago. And, you know, sometimes you just got to remind yourself to step away for a little bit. It can wait. It's important stuff. And I think the truth matters more than anything, you know, truth overall, but it's okay to step away. You don't have to win the battle in one night. Do you think a topic like that is like weighs on you more because it's particularly dark and particularly real? Like it's in the case of Bigfoot, you know, you can kind of, you know, conjecture and, and think about what it really is. If it's really real at the end of the day, Bigfoot's probably, I mean, it's possible you could be in the woods and encounter one, but yeah, Bigfoot's not going to affect your life directly, probably where, and you can still put it, keep it in the realm of mystery. Whereas with something like this, this is an actual CIA. These are actual CIA documents. Uh, these are actual dark programs that are no are a hundred percent real, or at least as real as we can, we can imagine anything being. Do you think that adds an extra layer of sort of weight to it when you're going through something like that? Because it's not just, it's not something you can write out. You can't envision a Harry and the Hendersons version of it. I guess. Yeah, I think that's a very big part of it. I think that that is something especially that people need to watch out for. I think that when you're staring into the face of an actual evil or something that has that sort of morally corrupting potential, it becomes that much more entranced fighting against it. And that goes back into the spiritual protections. You know, I think corrupting influences remain corrupting, even if you think you're fighting them. Evil is an insidious thing. And it's that much more entrancing for being insidious. So, yeah, I think that's definitely a component of it. I think that's also part of the reason why, going back to it, Bigfoot's such a safe topic. You know, what's it really going to affect if it's real? Mm -hmm. But I think the idea of being able to remotely view missile bases is something that could have real impact. And, you know, without getting too insane... It, you know, and there's their own declassified documents that demonstrate they had enough results that were positive that it was without outside the margin of error. So let's dig into that remote viewing topic a little more, because that, that's one that is not as common anyway to, to really see deep dives on in the conspiracy world. So for people that don't aren't aware, can you describe exactly what these documents Right, right. As I'm saying, is this too dark of a topic? I'm going to go go dive in deep with you. Right. But, um, can you just describe kind of what what this program was and what these documents show without necessarily having to go through the the ninety six thousand pages? But uh, just give people sort of an overview. So the sort of the pitch behind this, right, is that everyone's aware of the idea of psychic powers. Most people are aware of the concept of extrasensory perception. Maybe the human mind is more powerful than we think it is. Maybe we can make it do things to influence the physical world. Now, the U.S. government, the U.S. military, and I would presume every other government and military on the planet has at one point or another devoted some amount of funding to researching this in the hopes of weaponizing it. What we are specifically talking about was a uh, through approximately the mid-70s, and, you know, there were successor projects immediately afterwards. If they tell you one thing ended, it's only because they changed the name and moved into a new building. But the idea was that you would provide this person, a sufficiently psychically active person, a set of map coordinates, or a location, or some details about a physical space and time, and they would then be able to use their quote-unquote psychic powers, their extrasensory perception, and actually view what was happening in that space from wherever they actually were, usually a lab in California. Now, this might seem crazy, but they were able to actually map at least one Soviet military installation and then later confirm the details via a spy plane flight. Now, it wasn't a perfect diagram, but the remote viewer was able to actually sketch basically the physical outward-facing grounds and buildings. And then they later confirmed that to, to be pretty darn close, at least, to, to what they actually look like? 
Yes, that's correct. Yep. So, so that that's kind of the idea. Uh, the documentation I was talking about is mostly memos regarding this, their reports on the experiments as they were conducted, their information about how they set up the experiments and chose to run them. There's quite a bit of it that's about a person named Yuri Geller, which is a name people may know for a lot of reasons. <laughs> Dig, dig more into Yuri Geller. I feel, I've heard the name, but I, I'm not exactly sure the whole the whole story there. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let me see if I can't look up the name of his TV show. You might recognize it from that. Uh, he's probably one of the most famous psychics and performers of all time. Uh, he's an Israeli gentleman. I wish I could remember. Israeli illusionist Yuri show. Geller. Yeah. You know, the, he's done loads and loads of TV shows. Oh, cool. So he's like a sort of a magic slash paranormal type guy. Yes. The only difference is that he actually was uh, performing a lot of these experiments with the U.S. government and is referenced by name. Wow. So maybe he's doing cheap street magic now. Maybe he is an actual psychic individual where he was taken seriously enough that he was treated as if his mind was a weapon. Uh, he's been on a lot of British TV, a lot of network TV in the U.S. Yeah, he's sort of a show, pop culture he's, he's kind of figure. Show appearances. He was on like Nova documentaries. Yeah, all checking all the boxes of places you'd think a script to show up. Though, I'll say this. I was almost positive he had like his actual own dedicated TV show for a while. And for the life of me, I can't find the name of it, so maybe I'm mistaken on that. But it might have been a well. There was a show called The Next Yuri Geller, where it's like America's next top, you know, next top paranormal guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- actually, that's almost certainly exactly what I'm thinking of. That probably is it. That probably is it. Um, so, I guess I, what I'm curious of your insights on on that specific topic, like where do they, f- how do they find a Yuri Geller in the first place? Do you think this is something where some there are certain people that are sort of naturally gifted and able to remote view or is it something that they like concocted and could somehow train people to do or use psychedelics or whatever they do mk elder type shit to turn someone into a remote viewer what's the what's your take on that i think that to the extent that esp is real and i do firmly believe that it's real i don't know the scopes or bounds of it but there's something to this phenomena I think that most people are probably born with these skills, or rather, most of these practitioners are born. I don't think you can be trained into it. I think if you are born with the skills, it's certainly both both open to the public and not so open to the public that these skills can be honed. They can be trained like any other muscle. But I don't think, or at least I'm not aware of an instance where an entirely psychically inert individual was able to train into these skills. Now, what you said about psychedelics is interesting, though, because based on what we know about those sort of mind-altering chemicals, mind-expanding, consciousness-expanding, you would steroids for the mind, and steroids for ESP, right? And I am not personally aware of much research that's been done into trying to use microdosing in conjunction with ESP research. I'm sure it's been done. I'm not aware of it. And if it hasn't, it would be a great surprise to me that it hasn't been done. Hmm. Maybe I'll have to run my own experiment someday on that one. I, I don't know. We'll see. But <laughs> um, hmm. I want to kind of circle back a little bit into going back to the Mothman prophecies, because uh, that, that's one of the books that I read. I, I'm not sure if I read the book and then saw the movie, or if I saw the movie and that made me interested in the book. I don't really remember 30 years ago or so, but um, what's so interesting with the Mothman story is that it, it, it goes into so many areas and overlaps with so many areas, um, including the men in black and, you know, the, the sort of the typical, which is funny to bring up because, Hey, we have movies, Men in Black. Like it's it's one of those examples of something that's it's sort of acceptable to talk about. It's acceptable to make a parody about. Um, but it's almost like the movies want wanted to make make it out like the Men in Black are just the government spooks that are covering up the tracks or what have you. And on the surface, like that's kind of what tracks in your mind. But then until you read some of these descriptions, uh, especially in John Keel's books, like. I think there's a book. I, I don't know if it's from him or some other work where you actually see some pictures of a couple of the men in black. I, I feel like I did see it in one of his books, but like these don't seem like 
regular humans from the description. It almost seems like they are like characters trying to like hello fellow kids for humans like it seems like they're just trying to act human and it's a very it's hard to really describe without reading some of the descriptions uh in his books but i'm just kind of curious your thoughts on the men as men in black particularly as portrayed by by john keel in, in his books so to your point yeah absolutely the men in black when they appear they appear to intimidate cryptid or ufo witnesses Oddly enough, not so much people who have ghost visitations, but they will appear to you. They'll present themselves as having U.S. uh, government credentials of some kind, whether it be Air Force, Navy, uh, Department of Homeland Security, CIA, or whatever. They'll claim, and then they'll start talking to you, and it will become readily apparent that they don't even seem to know how to act human, Mm -hmm. let alone as if they're from the U.S. government. They'll ask you for a glass of water and then not understand how to drink it. Uh, They'll sit awkwardly. They appear to have their faces literally painted on in some cases. They have no table manners. If you ever saw the TV drama Fringe, which I I highly recommend. It was a wonderful TV program back in the day. Basically supposed to be like a man in black. And there's one scene where he just dumps an entire salt shaker on his stake in a diner while he's meeting with a source. And it's that sort of thing, right? They don't know how to interact with food, with water, with things that presumably humans know how to do innately. It's almost like they read a manual about things humans do. So they like know the things they're supposed to do, but then because they don't really do them, it's, it comes across very awkward. Yes. And so that basically for, Forces you to ask the questions. It can't be a human adult because it doesn't know how to survive as a human. So, what is it? And that goes back to some of Keel's other theories. What I was talking about with the super spectrum is this another manifestation of a being who is in the right set of atmospheric conditions, appearing to the person with the right amount of cones in their eyes to be able to perceive this being from across a different part of the light spectrum. And that is why they're appearing to this person, because they're not actually a human. There's something else. And that sounds insane to say and to talk about on a podcast, but, you know, open your mind just a little bit. You can't explain it away as being an actual person. You literally can't. So <laughs> where does that really leave do. you? Yeah. So to, when you say like... So do you think that not, for example, do you think the two people could be standing in the same exact location when a Mothman might appear and only one of them might see it because that maybe only one person is sort of has the right whatever it may be going on in their brain or their eyes or whatever it is that lets them see this thing that's sort of allowing itself or bringing itself or whatever into our reality? Or do you think it's, it's more like whether they're making them visible to the human spectrum overall? Or, do you, or is it kind of maybe a, a combination of both? I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. I think that there's probably intrinsic human biological factors that make any given person more or less susceptible to see these things. But I think the actual conditions that allow for these things to appear probably has more to do with atmospheric conditions, whether it be how radio waves are bouncing off the moon on a given day or how much position of the air has changed at a given time. And, you know, that's where even the famous swamp gas explanation of UFOs came from, and which never really made much sense because it almost proves the case more than disproves it. Right, right. So I I do think it's a combination of the two, but there's probably a bias towards environmental factors. Interesting. So, what what are your thoughts on what on what the Men in Black actually are then? Because it's it's not like Mothman. You could, and I'm not sure what I think about Mothman. I I I don't know if it's sort of I don't want to say mindless, but like a Bigfoot or something. Some and I want to say I don't want to offend Bigfoot (laughs) that he's mindless, but. Point being, a creature that's just there doing its thing, you might be able to write, write it off as, for whatever reason, people could view it at this time. Maybe it's a harbinger of things to come, of negative things or not, but it's just kind of doing its thing. Whereas a, a Men in Black can't be explained that way, because a Men in Black is actually coming to someone's house, attempting to interact with them, intimidating them. So how do you work that into the, the sort of 
your 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 view anyway of the super spectrum theory like what is the purpose of those men in black that th- whether they want to intimidate people for, away from talking about these things they've seen um what what do you think the motive would be there and obviously we know here this is all speculation of course well of course it is all speculation this whole show is speculation to um i think for me it seems to me like they are some sort of regulatory antibody for the super spectrum itself it seems to me that they are probably appearing to people who weren't or people who saw a little bit too much of whatever was manifesting or was able to manifest because there's no guarantee that they'll appear and they're tracking uh their appearances come and go even more infrequently than ufos or than bigfoot or whatever boogeyman creature of your choice so it seems to me that they probably like i the word i used was antibody and i think that's probably the correct term for it you know they're appearing as part of the immune response of what s that overlays with our reality and that they are there to sort of clean up mistakes you know they when something gets a little wider than it should or when someone saw something they actually were not legitimately supposed to see that's when this sort of strong man archetype manifests itself and says enough's enough let's try to tie this in because you you did mention something there that the men in black they specifically tend to come to people that saw ufos or some other type of cryptid like a mothman but they don't really do that for spirits um that seems to be the realm of you know the Catholic priest or whatever. That that's who get that's who comes to check that stuff out, and it's it's not like he just shows up. Someone's got to call them. So, what's your view on that? Because John Keel's work, I, I, at least it's been a long time since I, I read a lot of his books, but I, I think he he does sort of incorporate a lot of this stuff into sort of the same the same view of reality that these are all sort of extra dimensional entities in some way, shape, or form that we're interacting with in various ways. But you know, just thinking about how the Men in Black don't seem to care about ghosts and su- such like what, what's your view on that so you are right in that keel did try to create a sort of universal theory or he laid the groundwork for what other extra or paranormal researchers have tried to do with a universal theory and i'm of the opinion that a lot of these phenomena are probably separate phenomena you know they are not inherently related even if they in terms of how physics work in our real world or allegedly work because what i think about physics is another matter for another time but i tend to believe that these things are separate because they are literally separate they are not connected there is no unified field theory of the supernatural they act on different mechanisms because they are different things even if they act using the same forces does that make sense it does, yeah, and and it's the one thing I'm not the one thing, <laughs> the one of the many things I'm always sort of trying to rectify when I dig into this stuff because there are a lot of um, there are like religious uh, scholars out there who will they'll try to tie in they they will basically kind of say like UFOs and any basically everything's a demon is, is is what it comes down to I think for for a lot of like the the the, the Christian outlook on on things mm-hmm. and but that I'm not saying that's not the case uh, if if they're all you know doing something that's not great or you know if their interaction with reality as in the case of the mothman didn't seem to be connected to anything is particularly good um i don't know if that means a mothman type creature shows up and causes bad things to happen or if it means a mothman type creature showing up displays that some weird stuff is going on which might also be related to bad things happening but that doesn't mean mothman caused it um i'm always curious how to rectify all of these things interacting um with each other and with our reality and how we can kind of how we can kind of tie them all together so you would say that these are just sort of there's not like they're not all part of the same thing they might be different types of entities but they're they're sort of kind of on their own paths i guess is that they're acting by the same means but that they are different things. The right? same means being they probably like, have to use the same mechanics oh, interesting. to act okay. upon our world. Uh, as far as what you said there about Christians and everything is demons, uh, without getting too much into turning this into a theological thing, I'm a practicing Protestant personally, okay. and I think that there's probably something to that, 
and that, you know, a person should remember if they're someone of the Christian persuasion or if they're someone who's at least open to those possibilities, that demons, as conceptualized, can take on many forms and can mm-hmm. influence a person in many ways. So if you accept that that sort of force of evil is a real thing that can act in the world, it can probably appear as anything. Right. You know, right. that doesn't mean the UFO is a demon. Mm-hmm but it doesn't mean that it's not. Yeah, UFOs are the most, the most interesting one of all these because, A, like we talked about in the beginning, it's, it's actually maybe tied with Bigfoot, but I think, even more, I think it even wins over Bigfoot in terms of, at least now, in terms of mainstream acceptance. Like, I mean, you see UFO jokes like left and right now. I mean, it's just, it's just an accepted part of our reality, and, and yet it's also... Well, I don't know. It used to be. I, I feel like even five years ago, it would still be kind of like poo-pooed if you believe in aliens. But now it is. Now there has been, at least from my perspective, a little bit of a turn where it's like, yeah, yeah, we all know there's aliens. And, and now it's the propaganda is trying to tell us, yes, there's aliens. Of course, there's aliens. Um, maybe it's like you mentioned earlier that there's they're sort of all part of a cycle. But that's the one I go back and forth on because there does seem, at least in many instances, to be a mechanical aspect to some UFOs. And we know that whether it's remote viewing or something else, there's always sort of some secret government program. So I do wonder on what level is this, are these mechanical things that are actually just created or Nazi technology or whatever, and on what level they are spiritual things. And if there's actually a crossover there in some way that I, I can't even necessarily wrap my head around. I'm not sure I can wrap my head around it either, but there is almost certainly some amount of crossover. Mm. Because we know, for instance, like you said, the Nazis. We know they experimented with some extremely strange-shaped aircraft, and we know they see gravitational engines any number of times. Maybe some of them succeeded, and we never got to hear about them for very good reason. Or even going back to the 1890s, there was the great airship flap which was like a sort of proto-UFO event where people throughout the American South and West were seeing these truly massive blimps. And they would follow the pattern of basically UFO extraterrestrial encounter stories where the blimp would either set down or someone would come down on a rope from the blimp. They'd do something extremely strange, how to drink it. And then they'd be on their very merry way and no one would ever be able to explain it. So is that a UFO? Were these people actual inventors in airships? What What's the deal, right? And there's no reason it can't be multiple things. And that's what makes all this stuff so much more complicated. And circling back to the beginning of our discussion, that's why you just need to exercise so much caution and not be afraid to chew on the details of something for a while before you think you've got it figured out. It's somewhat similar to like developing political beliefs or something. Like we, Everybody always gets to the point of like, oh, I got it. Whether it's the Rothbard book or whatever. Now I figured it out. But there's probably another book and another book and another book that's going to give you a different perspective. And it, it's similarly with this. Like, I don't think you can ever get to a point where you figured it out. You figured this thing out. Um, there's always going to be a different perspective that causes you to think a different way. So if you ever try to settle on one and find yourself in a defensive position, because now you've settled on it and you know the truth about this thing, you're going to find yourself just having to bat away anything that counters to it and why you're, if you're really just looking for the truth, then you can't really keep yourself on, on any one position when it comes to stuff like this, that we can't necessarily grasp it fully. Absolutely. You know, and that's, that's exactly right. You know, as soon as you lock yourself into one theory, all of a sudden you're discarding a lot of other useful information. If there was just one theory, enough people have been working on this for enough years. We'd have it settled by now if there was an answer, but there's just not. I am curious, since you mentioned it, and again, we're not going to make this a, per se, theological podcast, but I am kind of curious, um, with your background in Christianity, um, how you, how you, how that worldview helps inform you about things in the unknown realm, um, things like Bigfoot, UFOs, or what have you. Do you find that, um, scripture or whatever it may be sort of, I don't want to say answers the questions in the terms of you know the truth about a thing, but does it sort of inform you that this is something mankind has always dealt with in some way, shape, or form? Because there really is a lot of mystery and a lot of this unexplained type stuff in ancient texts. Uh, maybe they're just interpreted differently or presented to us differently, but they're certainly there. Um, so I'm kind of curious how, how all of that sort of jives for you as you break this stuff down. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good question, and I think that is exactly right. I think that having this sort of grounding, and I'm assuming that people from other religious backgrounds, if they take it seriously, would also have this grounding when working with these topics, it helps. Because you know evil is always going to be with us. You're going to know it's part of the human condition. You're going to know it, and that you don't get to slay the dragon yourself overnight. Only God, as I would say it, or whatever being you choose to place your worship in, is the only one that's going to be able to take care of this. Mm. So I, I do think that that is a comfort, and I do think that that does provide the necessary grounding to say, okay, we know that there's forces greater, but there's none greater than you know ob- the object of worship, of God. So you can be secure in that, knowing that, that even if we can't, and that doesn't necessarily make it safe to explore. Because that gets back to what I was saying about evil being insidious and being seductive. But it does mean that they can be handled safely as long as you've got your spiritual gloves on, right? As long as you handle with care. Yeah, what are your thoughts then on something like, because like in, in terms of it being seductive, I mean, the idea of like ghost hunting and that, and that sort of thing where people actually go out of their way to go and try to communicate with ghosts demons, whatever it may be. And I mean, 15, 20 years ago, I would tell you, this is the coolest shit. I was really into that, that kind of stuff. Um, not, I didn't do it myself, but in terms of like following people that, that did do it. And now uh, maybe it's just because I, I've taken, um, just a different worldview in the past couple of years. I take evil a lot more seriously, um, and a lot more real. Uh, so to me, that's almost like, is that playing with fire a little too much? Should we really be, you know, just hunting a ghost? It seems, you know, it seems like it's like going into the ocean without, or at least without the proper armor, whatever that armor may be. Um, but you know, it's, it's like going, jumping into the ocean, like wrapped in like bloody meat chunks. Cause you want, you want to see a, you want to see a shark or something like that. So I'm curious what your thoughts on, on those that like yourself, you sit behind the microphone and, and you talk about these topics and you find them interesting what do you think about those that take it a step further and actually try to seek this stuff out, whether it's ghost hunting or, or Bigfoot hunting, whatever it may be? Well, so on that note, I have done just a little bit of ghost hunting oh, myself. Okay. Well, then you can and, speak from your own experience. Yeah, yeah. I'll say this. I think it is profoundly too dangerous for most people to be drawing grounding. Uh, you are opening up doors, as they say, to a lot of things and allowing a lot of things to have purchase on your mind and soul literally and figuratively by participating in these activities. You know, that's why I don't take the TV shows very seriously. They're either making it all up or they're behaving very dangerously. And neither of those is very good for anything other than entertainment. So I think that, yeah, you do need to be extremely cautious and that you need to be prepared to just leave, just walk away from this stuff. You know, even more so than putting a book down, you need to be ready to just get out if you do find something and run into something that is sufficiently powerful and sufficiently evil. And you also need to be extremely prepared for there to be just be nothing there. You know, if you start willing things into existence, that gets into Tolpa theory, that gets into egregore theory. Mm-hmm. And I take that stuff very seriously too. You can't let yourself be so obsessed with the idea that there's something here that you create the something yourself. Let's dig into that a little bit more um, about what you mean by that, because there might even be people that are with us all the way till now that they're like, <laughs> I can believe in the supernatural. I can believe there's other stuff we, we can't really comprehend that we might interact with. But now you're telling me just by thinking about this, I can create these things. So, so what, you know, let's dive into that a little bit. So, in our modern culture, in the current pop culture, the term tulpa is kind of what's caught on as a way of expressing this idea that a person, by inubing enough thought energy into something, can create a metaphysical entity for themselves. And the traditions this is born out of generally consider this a negative thing, like it's destined to be out of your control by the end of it. It's basically a psychic goal. It will betray you. Once it becomes powerful enough, it will seek to free itself from your design and influence. A pseudo-famous example that people who are able to kind of follow this conversation already, like if they've got any background at all might have heard of, is the Philip experiment. 
where a group of researchers basically sat down and over the course of, I want to say it was a month, maybe it was more, maybe it was a little less, but about a month basically willed a ghost into existence where there was none. They sat down together and wrote a story about a child who had died in this house, and they, they wrote stories about began to manifest uh, poltergeist activity and paranormal events. So whether or not that is the case consistently or whether they were, as a group, sufficiently psychically active to do something like that, those are all factors you have to control for and account for. But, you know, if you're going to a well-known haunted house and you're hanging out there and you really believe the ghost is there, you're probably contributing to the creation of such a thing. You know, and if there wasn't a ghost there before, then something pretending to be a ghost will eventually be there to feed on the fact that you think it's a real ghost, even if whatever appears is not a ghost. Yeah, I guess that's that's where I go with this as well. Like, are are people's thoughts and people's belief in something actually creating this new thing in some weird way, or is it something else? If you want to call it a demon, an evil spirit, whatever you may be that can mimic that thing or turn into that thing and show you that it's real. Um, as you know, I, I, we see in many exorcist stories and the sort of thing, you know, they'll, the people will be trying, this often happens when people are trying to commune with the dead and the spirit will come in and sort of like, give them information that only that dead person could know. But of course, if this is an evil spirit or a demon or something, yeah, they have access to that information and could use that to manipulate you into, into whatever it may be. So I'm, yeah. Is that, is that where you kind of see this then that it's, do you think it's less creating the thing and more just giving something else, the power to sort of take on the features of that thing? So I use two different words there, right? I use the word tulpa and I use the word egregore. Yes, And a lot of people use these interchangeably, but there is a sort of subtle difference between the two. Uh, the idea an individual creates, whereas an egregore is a sort of non-denominational, non-religious term for this idea of that sort of extra-dimensional force that can shape a manifestation based on the inputs it receives. And that's the sort of thing where there's a group of people collectively psychically feeding a phenomenon that is that feeding apparitions and feeding appearances and feeding its own energy back into the physical world all right well um dexter we're probably going to wrap up the main show pretty soon here but i want to make sure you get a chance to talk a little bit more about uh the projects you're involved with you've been doing the gaslight hour for years now and then i i want to say yeah i don't know exactly how long it was maybe a year or two ago when uh when um the old friends against government morphed into timeline earth and you jumped in and started the scarlet thread society which is just an absolute delight to, to listen to for someone like me um so why don't you just tell everybody kind of how you took this interest, first of all, and, and brought it into podcasting and, um, you know, just plug away on everything you got going on on that end. Well, I've listened to Coast to Coast AM for years and years and years. And my favorites were always archives of the real old Art Bell radio shows. And Art Bell is a hero of mine, per seemed like someone who was legitimately a truth seeker, really wanted answers. He did have his own beliefs, but he was willing to adjust them. He wasn't married to anything, but he always pushed back on people who might have sold him a load of bullshit. So eventually he did retire from his own radio show, and it was taken over by George Norrie, a name others might know. And I kept listening, and Norrie was good as a radio host, but he was a little bit less incredulous. He liked guests get away with a lot more. Yeah, he's not our bell. No, he's not not our our bell. Well, I, I think you're doing a pretty good job. Uh, nope. Yeah, I, I think Thank your you. your approach I, I on, on Scarlet Thread Society, I, I think, is a little closer to Art Bell in the sense that you like you give everybody the chance. You bring on people. You read a lot of stories of of ex- real experiences that people have had, or you know things that people experience, and um, you know you you give just enough uh, with and, and you, uh, to me with with something like this, especially anything like this, when we're in the we, the realm of the weird and unknown. What do we know? We're already in the weird and unknown. So we have to sort of accept people's stories on their face for as long as they seem like they're not contradicting themselves overtly. Because um, we really all we all we can do is really just, you know, sort of take in what what they're giving us. And you, you do a really good job with that on the Scarlet Thread Society. Thank you. 
So to finish where I was going with that, I then got the chance to go on a podcast that I had listened to religiously while it was still being made, The Damn Woods. And I talked with them a little bit about what I think about cryptids, what I think about ghost stories. We swapped some stuff. And I went silent for a little bit. I thought about getting into podcasting myself. And that was about the time the Gaslight Hour was born. Uh, it warms my heart that you're willing to praise that show the way you are. I love doing it. And I've loved it for a long time. But we release episodes very slowly. <laughs> uh, we've been doing it for three years and we have maybe 40 episodes. But Blood, sweat, and tears go into each one. And that was also about the time that the Friends Against Government were born. Yes. And it was not too many episodes in. I started to already knew both the hosts from the old, the old, old Anarchy Ball Twitter group chat. Uh, there were a lot of podcasts that are still going that were born in that Twitter group chat, actually. And they've all kind of drifted apart for very good reasons. People change. <laughs> But uh, it was a big creative room with a lot of creative energy. And so I did guest appearances then with the Friends Against Government. I did my own show with my co host, The Gaslight Hour. It's not mine, I'm just a co host on it. Uh, shout out to my buddy. He used to go by Absurd Nihilism. I think he's changed his Twitter handle now. Ted, love you, man. It's his podcast. Uh, and I'm grateful every day he lets me co-host it with him. But to your point, I was doing guest appearances with the Friends Against Government, and eventually, Bird and I are good enough friends, Car and I are good enough friends, Aaron and I are good enough friends. When they decided they wanted to do a special release every Friday, they needed to be a fourth guy. I have good enough chemistry with them. They were gracious enough to extend the opportunity to me. And I'm using that opportunity to try and do long-form work, on all of this stuff, the supernatural, government conspiracy, the paranormal, uh, really anything that needs to be explored for one reason or another. All right. Well, you can follow along with Paz on all his explorations um, on the sporadically published Gaslight Hour and, of course, over on Timeline Earth, the Scarlet Thread Society. Check them all out, Paz. I think you're going to stick around with me here, jump into the smoke-filled room. If you thought we talked about some weird stuff already, well, let's we're going to see how much weirder we can get. Uh, but until then, thanks, Paz. Keep up the great work, and thanks for coming on my show. Yeah, thank you. All right, gang. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Dexter de la Paz of the Scarlet Thread Society. And this was only a portion. The conversation did not end here. It kept going for premium subscribers of the Mark Claire Show for the lifeblood of the show. The guys that enabled me to do this by paying the bills and helping me grow this thing as I am still in the very early launch stages. So I, I really do appreciate all of the early support I've gotten. And I've, I've certainly been doing my best to give back to my supporters with these extended premium editions. So if you hop behind the paywall, whether it's Patreon, Rockfin, Subscribestar, you can find all those links in the show notes. Uh, you can find the extended edition of my conversation with Dexter de la Paz. You can also hear my recent conversation with Pete Quinones of the Pete Quinones show, where we we uh, gave our thoughts, our reactions to the Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse. That was a really fun one. You'll also get Mark's monthly musings where every month I talk about some going ons in my life, some things I've been listening to, things I've been reading, my personal thoughts on the episodes. So much extra content for as little as eight smackers per month. Uh, you can be a premium subscriber to the Mark Claire show. Now, one of those subscribers my man, Jared Wall, he runs the THC Hemp Spot. I got to make sure you know about that for all your legal Delta 8 products shipped directly to your door. Jared has done a wonderful service as well. If you go over to his website, thchempspot.com, and you use the code MARK. That simple, but you got to spell it right. You got to use that C, my friends. M-A-R-C gets you 15% off your order over at thchempspot.com. Be sure to check it out. Don't forget, head over to foxandsons.com, our first official sponsor, foxandsons.com. And if you send a screenshot of an Apple podcast review, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you send that to markclareshow at gmail.com, you will be entered into a raffle for a free and look, this doesn't look as big as it is because I've already gone through half of this bag in like two weeks. This two-pound bag, you're going to get shipped directly to your house, directly from my man, Stephen Fox of Fox & Sons Coffee. So many wonderful deals here just for listening to this show. And again, 
you get even more. You go even deeper behind those paywalls, baby. Check it all out at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. And until next time, friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Good night.